This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hey. Yay, here we are. Yeah. It's wonderful to be with you, Sharon, again, and to sit with you and have this um, chance to have this hour-long conversation together. Um, and um, and for those who may not know, Sharon and I knew each other prior to this conversation a few years ago, I think two or three years ago, uh, you invited me to teach with you, to teach a week-long metta, loving-kindness retreat mm-hmm. at IMS, which was lovely. It was just fabulous, and I learned so much from you. So, And it's lovely to spend this hour again together. Thanks for being here. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And I feel like I want to say hi. Because <laughs> I know my back is too, and I'm really sorry. So the themes for tonight, I'll, I'll start there, the conversation with um, cultivating balance, resilience, compassion, and clarity during <laughs> difficult times. I know it's, it's a tall order, but we'll, we'll get to them little by little. So starting with, um, with cultivating balance, um, something that I know you, you've cultivated yourself and you teach. So just starting there, speaking about balance and cultivating that, mm-hmm. um, wherever you like to take it, Sharon. Well, part of why I was laughing was because um, I was recently writing a, a workshop description for something I was going to do, and I settled on something like cultivating balance uh, in challenging times or difficult times. And then I thought, you know, I should look back at this center and see who's taught what there recently. And every single course description included either in difficult times or in challenging times. <laughs> and I thought either they're particularly having a hard time in L.A. or, or uh, oh, look at this. Everybody, every single person is choosing to include that in the description. Isn't that interesting? Um, the word balance itself I find very interesting. Um, for a long time, I didn't like it much. I considered balance almost as a kind of mediocrity. I thought, why cultivate that? That's like so bland and dull and it has no particular features. It's just kind of a bush or or something like that. And it took a long time for me to appreciate uh, kind of the strength and gracefulness and balance. It's not like adding a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but it's often finding a whole other way of relating. And it's in that balance, which also means harmony, which means peace, that we have the ability uh, really to leap almost to another place. You know, when when things are out of balance, um, it's consuming. You know, we feel that, and we're trying to redress that imbalance consciously or unconsciously. But when they come into balance, then we have resource. We have, we have some reserves, and we can go further. Nice, nice. And in what you're sharing, 
Another word that comes up for me as I hear you is a sense of integration. Mm -hmm. So feeling integrated and, and aligned and whole when there is a sense of balance. So and that naturally leads naturally leads to resilience, which is the next concept. Because when you are aligned and whole, a sense of resilience comes up, which was another another one of the words chosen uh, for tonight's themes. So sense of resilience. So I'm curious what that means to you um cultivating yeah resilience well i was also amused at the title because usually you know whoever's leading the thing picks one quality (laughs) (laughs) not like 15 you know there's another one (laughs) okay that too um uh well resilience is very very interesting also i think it's a concept because uh it's a little more popular than balance um uh, there was a period when um, I was at the gala, the yearly gala of this nonprofit organization, and I was sitting at someone's table getting ready to go up to the stage and speak. And the woman whose whose table was at said, whatever you do, don't talk about resilience. I've already been to a resilience lunch today. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I was going to talk about resilience. <laughs> I better think of something quick. Um, <laughs> Oops. But all of these qualities, it's really um, the overarching model is the belief that the stress cycle that we experience is a product of the coming together of the stressor, the stressful experience, internal or external, and the resources we have to meet it with. Because something huge might be happening, but maybe we don't feel so alone. Maybe we feel part of a community. Uh, maybe we have a faith, a sense of faith in some way that gives us a different perspective. Um, maybe we don't feel so ashamed or so uh, blameworthy, but we have a sense of compassion. You know, there, there are things happening from within with which we can meet that circumstance, and then it's a whole different experience. And so um, that, in a way, is what resilience is. It's a reflection of resilience, not just what's happening, but... How can we be with it? And and all of those qualities are considered highly trainable. You know, it's not like we have a certain measure of balance, a certain measure of um, connection, and that's it, you know, that we're stuck there. But these are capacities we have that we can continue to nurture and grow. And then no matter what happens, it's different. Um, and some people think that that becomes an excuse for not trying to change let's say, the external circumstance, you know, that we get complacent, we get passive, uh, we get very uh, way too inner focused, and we let things slide that really should be argued against or, or fought against. And uh, I really don't think it's that way. I think it's about, it could be that way, but it shouldn't be that way, and, and it doesn't have to be that way, that it's really much more about acknowledging the role of those inner strengths and kind of going for them. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned cultivating those inner strengths, and you mentioned many different ways to actually um, recognizing the difficulties, and through those do- doorways of difficulties, whether it's shame or or physical difficulties or emotional difficulties or relational difficulties, actually using those as doorways 
um, to cultivate strengths specifically in those areas. So no, not thinking of them as problems, but, but as doorways. So I'd love to hear you share more teachings on that, please, for all of us. Um, that's the hardest thing. <laughs> um, and you weren't right there. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I think with all of these things, it's like there's a fine line, you know, because you don't want to fall into that place where you're not willing to address difficulty as difficulty that really needs to be looked at, you know, maybe very honestly and critically and in terms of a system. But uh, even alongside that, there are ways in which, um, I think there, there are ways in which we protest our own experience. Like uh, we just don't want to believe it's that way. And that doesn't leave us with great advantage in actually meeting it or making a difference in the circumstance, you know? And uh, that's the place where, you know, we might endlessly blame ourselves for something that we could never have controlled. And we do tend to do that. Um, or we don't understand the efficacy of beginning again. You know, even when I teach, and I'm sure when you teach a foundational meditation exercises, one of the great mysteries of meditation is that um, success is not marked the way we tend to think it's marked. You know, so let's say you're using the breath as the object of awareness, and it would be easy to think, well, I'm making progress. Yesterday I could be with two breaths before my mind wandered. Today I could be with eight. That means tomorrow I should be able to be with 18. And really what we're taught, although very few people believe it, is that it's not a question of accumulating more breaths. It's a question of letting go of the distraction more gracefully, uh, having more kindness towards yourself as you return again and again and again. And that's not easy to measure. It's much easier to say, well, it was two breaths, now it's eight. I'm doing great. Um, but really, the whole point is the letting go and beginning again. That's the muscle we're training, and it's the life skill we're cultivating that goes directly into our day. Because how many times a day do you have to actually do that? You know, you realize, oh, I made a mistake, I better start over, or I need a course correction here. I was looking at it from a certain angle, not quite right. You know, let me make a shift. We're doing that constantly. And so uh, without giving yourself a lecture or, or trying to be pious about it or anything, that's like the muscle group you're actually training in doing that. And so uh, it's a huge advantage, but we never think about that. You know, and one of my teachers was a um, Burmese monk, a man named Saito Upandita. And he had a kind of trick question he would ask people at some point in a meditation retreat, he'd say, about how many breaths can you be with before your mind starts to wander? And the reason that it's a trick question is that they believe it takes a good degree of mindfulness to notice how scattered you are. So if he says, about how many breaths can you be with before your, before your mind starts to wander? And you say two, that's a good answer. They consider that a good answer. Whereas if you say, I can be with the breath for 45 minutes and my mind never wanders, they think you're so lost in space. It's like you don't have any idea what's going on. And sometimes I've been sitting in the back of the room and he's asked someone that. And I've heard people say, oh, I can be with the breath for an hour and my mind never wanders. 
And I sit there and think, don't say that. <laughs> you think that's such a good answer. That's not such a good answer. Um, you know, so the signs of attainment are a little different. And that's why we sometimes call meditation a, a practice of resilience, because that's what we're training. Nice, nice. And I so appreciate what you said um, about um, letting go and beginning again. Letting go and beginning again. Not just in practice of meditation when your mind wanders after two breaths, but in daily life mm -hmm. when you realize you've made a mistake instead of self-flagellating, instead of throwing perfectly good moments after mm -hmm. that not-so-good moment mm -hmm. of, of self-judgment to, to let go and begin again mm -hmm. with kindness, which is another thing that you're, you're referring to, with self-compassion, which... Mm -hmm. which brings up the other topic of cultivating kindness towards ourselves and towards others, cultivating compassion towards ourselves mm -hmm. and towards mm -hmm. others, which you have spent a lifetime mm. teaching. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just happens to be true. <laughs> Actually, I'm over 45 years, to be exact. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. So... Um. No, I think in all these many years, and it's been a lot of years, and uh, I was sort of smiling at that because somebody said to me recently, I know you don't like to think of it this way, but, you know, you really did introduce. And I said, it's true. You know, like, it's not a question of not liking to think of it that way. Um, and the reason I say that is not out of any kind of boastfulness, but because it actually wasn't highly accepted when I first started teaching loving kindness. Um and in, in that way, I think it reflects the kind of cultural uh, provocation, provocation that it provided, which was, you know, first of all, believing that being kind, being compassionate was somehow uh, akin to being kind of stupid. And it's weak, it's sentimental, it's like being conflict avoidant, it's refusing to look at real pain and suffering, it's like woo-woo, you know. Um, which I heard a lot, and one does hear a lot because it's a very prevalent notion. I've often thought about this society in general, um, if one can make a generalization about a whole country, but kindness has seemed to me often to be thought of as a kind of, at best, a secondary virtue. Like if you can't be brilliant, you can't be courageous, and you can't be wonderful, it's like, okay, be kind, you know, it's nice. <laughs> it's not great, They're but there. it's good, They're it's there. good, you know, it's good. Um, but it, if it is of greatness, I think, really, if we, any of us were to look at the people who maybe were kind to us when it was a rarity or saw something in ourselves that we couldn't see in ourselves, um, we don't think of them with pity. You know, it's huge appreciation and gratitude because it's a power. It's a strength. And then the other myth that it's very hard for us to deal with often is this idea that something like love or loving kindness or kindness can be cultivated, can in effect be trained. You know, there often seems to be a belief that it's almost like these qualities are like a gift. And if you don't have it, you're out of luck. Or it's sort of an eruption of a, a spontaneous emotion that there's no background to. You know, it's not rooted anywhere. Whereas in Eastern psychology, like in Buddhist psychology, they would say absolutely compassion can be trained because it's an emergent property of how we pay attention. You know, if you're talking to somebody and you're not really listening, 
and you're just consumed with the emails you need to write or who else you'd rather be talking to in this gathering or whatever, there's not going to be much of a sense of connection. So the, the conduit doesn't exist for noticing much about this person and therefore compassion maybe to arise in response to what you're seeing or um, maybe you've categorized somebody already, not even necessarily from knowledge of them, but what someone else said about them. So you no longer pay attention. So there's there's just nothing there in which to base that sense of, oh, you know, that likely hurts. Or I remember a time when I was not same circumstance, but I had that feeling of vulnerability or or being unseen, being abandoned. Um, we can't find one another if we're not paying attention. And we know absolutely attention can be trained. That's what meditation is. Uh, and so it's based on that that we really have that belief that qualities like compassion can be trained. We can grow in them. I love how you mentioned um, compassion and kindness, not as a secondary oh, booby prize strengths, but actually as a source of power and strength, you know, number one. Um, and also in terms of the cultivation that they can be cultivated. It's not that, well, you're just not born with it. Yeah. Tough luck. Um, that they can be cultivated. And throughout your own practice, throughout your teaching, you have witnessed the development of thousands of people um, who have cultivated compassion and kindness. And would love to ask you if you had some stories or anecdotes or observations uh, to bring that home. Um, well, let's see what arises in my mind. But uh, it's interesting because some of the same uh, protests are happening all the time. Like if I talk about be letting go and beginning again, uh, I don't know how you're all going to feel when we answer any questions, but you know, someone often will raise their hand and say, that's just laziness. You know, that if I were to make a mistake and in effect forgive myself and move on, that's just being lazy because it's like saying, eh, another minute I'll make another mistake, who cares? But it's really not. I think it's fascinating to me, uh, and I'll always come back to meditation because that's been my path, um, you know, to see that it's like making yourself your own laboratory. If you're trying to understand something, look at it in yourself. I do that all the time. If I'm trying to understand anger, its nature, its flavor, its characteristic, its strength, its limitation, I just do a kind of thought experiment. Like, what's it like when I'm really angry at myself and I bring it up and then I get to see, you know, or fear. So this means not being so fascinated by the object of the fear or the uh, situation that brought up the anger, but the feeling itself, um, really getting to learn it from within. And then you know. So something I, for example, often say in terms of sitting and looking at fear, which I've done quite a lot of, um, and again, it's looking in a particular way so that you almost like pivot, not what's the circumstance, but what's the feeling. Um, something I've seen is that unlike the world's pronouncement that we're afraid of the unknown, I'm really much more afraid when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. And it's the stories I tell myself that really get me going. And even right in the middle of that, if I can remind myself, you know what? You don't know. I feel space. I feel relief. I think, hey, I don't know. You know, now I can go on. So this world which held no options that were any good two seconds ago suddenly opens up because I don't know. Um, 
so it's a kind of learning that happens when we can pay attention in a different way. It it's all there, you know, to be discovered. Yeah. So what you mentioned, which I love, is is um, this shift, for example, in your own relationship with with um, the unknown and the fear that not knowing um, can bring up fear, and 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 actually being in the fear and and making really feeling understanding not the not so much the content but mm-hmm. but the sense of you're befriending the fear mm-hmm. um there's a sense of freedom mm-hmm. in that fear doesn't make you afraid anymore when you actually really experience it and that's a source of power and that's freedom yeah yeah so as you were saying teaching uh, having taught um compassion cultivation and kindness over decades, um, some people have fear of compassion, that it will make them weak or, mm-hmm. uh, or they'll become a wet noodle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know that you have had both teachings from your, your teacher, Munindraji, um, when you were in Bodh Gaya, I believe. And that's mm-hmm. a lovely story that I would love for you to tell that again, sure. if you would. Um, it's a it's a funny story also in that um, I guess in any uh, community and any kind of tradition I mean forty fifty years and from one angle it's not that long you know but for us in this country that's like a tradition you know that makes a tradition um, you tend to hear the same stories from a lot of different angles and uh, just a sort of apocryphal growing of the commentary like did you hear what happened to christina feldman i think no that happened to me it's my story or you know like did you hear what i said no that's not what he said you know this um so uh the story you're referring to and you can tell me if it's the way you heard it uh happened it was it was uh, when i was still living in india so the early 70s and i'd gone with a friend uh to calcutta um, to visit one of our teachers there, this woman named uh, Ma. And um, then we were going back to Bagaya, which meant getting on a train in Calcutta, going to Gaya, which is the nearest rail station, or at least it was then, I don't know about now. And then, you know, getting in like a rickshaw or something uh, to go on to Bagaya. But we couldn't get through the streets of Calcutta. There was something going on there. So we got into a rickshaw in Calcutta to get to the train station. And unlike other parts of India where uh, the rickshaw would be a guy on a bicycle with a kind of carriage in the back, in Calcutta there were there were men running. And that's how you were transported. So uh but there was it felt like there was no choice. So there was no other way of getting through the streets. So we got into this vehicle sort of and uh he was running and we, we started going through the the alleys and the back streets of, of this area in Calcutta. And, Suddenly this very large, very drunken man came out of the shadows and he stopped him and he grabbed me and he was trying to pull me off the cart and I was really terrified. And um, the friend that I was with, a man, managed to push him away and got the guy to start running again. So we got to the train, uh, went on the train for those hours to, to uh, Gaia, got to Bud Guy, and I was really shaken still. And uh, I said to Meninger, who was one of my teachers, uh, the story of what had happened. And he said, oh, uh, Sharon, with all the loving kindness in your heart, 
you should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head, <laughs> which became a symbol uh, for endless questions over decades of, you know, isn't there a kind of fierce compassion? Isn't there a way of fighting and still have some love in your heart? Isn't there a way of being strong without hating? Isn't there, you know, so many people have told that story. Uh, and of course, there are a million stories because people do this every day in their lives, in their ordinary lives. They find that place where a tremendous strength and a sense of integrity and compassion for themselves, and a sense of boundaries uh, is all there, but not born of, of uh, such a sort of um, divisive sense of hatred. I love that story, Sharon. And, and that's how I actually remember it because I read it in your book. And All right, you got it from me. I got it from you in your <coughs> seminal book, Loving Kindness. Yeah. Go out and get it if you haven't already. Um, so so I, I, I do love that story. And I actually tell it a lot when, when I teach also on compassion and the question comes up about, oh, I will be weak, et cetera. But, you know, to go further a little bit into um, the fear of compassion, I'm told that if you start to Google compassion, you know how it, uh, the computer will start providing what it thinks you're searching for because so many people have searched for that very thing that if you put in compassion, you'll get fatigue. <laughs> that that would be what they think you're looking for because so many people have compassion fatigue. And as you probably know, in certain, certainly in certain Buddhist circles and in certain research circles, um, they're trying to make a distinction between empathy and compassion. And uh, like the Dalai Lama, for example, would say, let's, let's call it empathy fatigue and not compassion fatigue because they don't think an excess of compassion is the problem. They think that it's not actually compassion we're responding with when we sense suffering in you know an empathetic way. Yeah, I'm so, so glad you brought that up. It's because, yeah, um, Part of um, empathy is part of compassion, but it's not equivalent to compassion, and and there is a big distinction really between the two of them. And you can't get compassion fatigue, but yes, indeed, you can have empathy fatigue. And cultivating compassion actually makes you stronger, gives you um, um, is a cause for resilience when there is difficulty, when there is suffering in the world, um, and and like to turn it back to you and ask about in your own practice um what what has I mean, i'm sure it's so many things at different times different decades different years but what what have you found to be really transformational for you sharon well in one way i could say everything you know because it's been so many years but i think certainly when i did um uh, in 1985 when i went to burma and i did uh, my first really guided stretch of loving-kindness practice, which was a three-month retreat. I'd already been practicing since January 1971, which was revolutionary all along. But um, there were things about that retreat that I, I feel like were really a turning point. For one thing, you know, in the classical Buddhist tradition, they say the Buddha taught loving-kindness is the antidote to fear. And I certainly experienced a good deal of that. Um, and uh, the way I tend to translate metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is commonly translated as loving kindness, I also, of course, use that, but uh, is connection. You know, it's, it's the ability to be connected and stay connected 
through a variety of different circumstances. And so going back to empathy and compassion for a minute, I mean, some of the um, more, uh, you could say, distinctive teaching, I guess, that I do is with caregivers. Although I need another word for that, actually. Um, whether in your personal life or your professional life, you feel like you're on the front edge of some kind of suffering. You know, you're taking care of someone, you're trying to help them, you're trying to make this be a better world. Um, and uh, it's because of that largely that I've gotten really fascinated in that distinction because, you know, there's so much emphasis as there should be uh, in this country, in this time on developing some empathy because it can be awfully cold and cruel and, and we need the empathy, but it's really not enough. Because um, one way of saying it, it's like a sequential progression. You might have genuine empathy for a person's or group's exhibiting of some distress, and that might frighten you, and you just want to run away. Or maybe you are so tired, you feel so depleted anyway. You feel like, I've got nothing inside of me to respond to this, this with. Or maybe I just met, far from here, I met a therapist uh, who doesn't work on the phone. So he's not working with any of you, unless you're from New York. Um, who said, I find myself these days continually blaming my clients. Like they start to tell me a story and I think, I told you what to do. I told you six months ago what to do. So don't worry, he's not your therapist. Um, but I got it, you know, like he, he was saying, you know, I hear the pain, it's just like, oh, come on. Um, or we might get into that very strange kind of savior mentality, like I am going to be the one who's going to fix you. Or we might have what might more literally be called a compassionate response. So within the Buddhist psychology, that means the way compassion is defined is um, it's like the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering. So that's the empathy part. So it's a movement of the heart, and it's a movement toward to see if we can be of help. That's different than a movement into, to burn up ourselves. It's a movement toward to see if we can be of help. There's the balance. You know, I once said to a group of people, I think if I were in charge of this universe, it would be a lot better a world. And someone in the room said, are you sure? And I thought about it and I said, I am really sure. <laughs> like, It would be a lot better. And you know what? It's not that way. And it's never going to be that way. So there's even a kind of poignancy, I think, in that realization. I will do everything I can and it's not my universe to control. It's just not like that. And, and we need that kind of understanding. We really do. Uh, and then empathy is bringing us closer and compassion is keeping us balanced. Right. I appreciate in what you just said, um, outlining the connection and really the close um, connection between compassion and equanimity or equipoise, not to fall into something, but also have that sense of balance, mm -hmm. equipoise, while 
being in touch with suffering of the world, suffering mm-hmm. of someone, and holding it with care, with love, with kindness, but not falling into it. It's in this stability, that, that equanimity uh, support. And I love the way that you, you brought it all together. Yeah. Um, which is probably a, a good time to segue into what we're uh, perhaps talking at the very beginning, which is nowadays everybody uses difficult times uh, because I guess they're all are difficult times. It reminds me of this Chinese blessing, uh, Chinese curse, which goes like this: "May you live in interesting times," because <laughs> interesting times are interesting. You don't want to live in interesting times. You lo- you want to live in boring times, really. <laughs> Nothing interesting, but these are interesting times. And these are difficult times in so many ways geopolitically. And um, and you teach so many people who I'm sure come to you with, with so much pain, so much difficulty. Um, it's it's hard to bear. What what would be the appropriate response at this time? So so many things, but but some some things that perhaps some practices to offer to people to take on. Um, you know, I think this, it's an interesting question. Have there always been difficult times? Well, clearly there have been for for people. And maybe the rest of us are more asleep, or I don't know. Um, and on a personal level, of course, it could be an excruciating time. And that's part of the pain is that you walk down the street and everyone seems fine, you know, but you're not. Um, uh, there's a lot of levels to that. and uh, But I think it is perceived as... Uh, maybe it's times with less support than we're accustomed to. One of the things I wrote about in Real Love was um, uh, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, about how some of the, just the uh, societal structures that used to bring us together, even in a kind of lighthearted way, like bowling leagues, were disappearing. So how do we meet one another? Or, you know, uh, I'm also fascinated by what is reported to be an epidemic of loneliness, uh, you know, in the U.S. and Japan, and um, England just appointed a minister of loneliness, you know, and you just think about that, and whether you're in a relationship or not, and it has to do with some sense of connection, going back to my favorite word, and, uh, you know, because I've also read, as we have, you know, uh, most of us, if you're reading about health outcomes and how much a kind of um, social support network plays a role in that and healing and so on. And um, I've also read that it's not necessarily a numbers game. It's not like saying, well, you've only got one friend. I think you need at least three. Uh, Although in some circumstances, maybe it is, but it's the sense of being connected, right? And so you see, you know, like in Asia, of course, there are uh, forms of life or, or Christian monasticism or, you know, you're not bowling with people, but but you're praying for people. You you have a sense of your life is about the well-being of everybody and needs to be dedicated to that. So I don't mean everyone has to join, you know, a club, but um, well, they might. But uh, it's that inner sense of connection that's going to be the healing force. And, and we need to learn to cultivate that. And... How are some ways that one can go about cultivating that? that oh, my favorite way, of course, is loving kindness meditation. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there are many, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, 
I have a friend who um, was in a terribly depressed state for a long time. It seemed like it was going to be forever, and it wasn't. Uh, he actually got a lot better. And one of the things he will say is that one of the best things he did in that whole long, long period was volunteer somewhere. You know, he went down to some place in New York that was making sandwiches for homebound people due to illness. And um, first they had him, and he's like a brilliant, accomplished person. Um, first they had him cutting sandwiches, but he couldn't because he was on so much medication. His hands were trembling too much. So then they had him wrapping sandwiches and he was so happy. He was doing something for somebody, you know, and uh, he was not just a recipient of people's care, which is not always an easy place to be, but he was offering something and, and he could connect to these people. Like, if you think about, I think about this often, like in New York City, walking down a street, what are all the stories going on behind those windows? You know, or sitting in a room, like we don't see an office building or something, but often if I'm teaching at night, you look over and there's something going on in the next building. And you think, how many stories are being played out here? And so many people with no one to talk to or, or just to acknowledge their existence. You know, it doesn't take that much. So there's that. There are many, many ways. And, uh, you know, as I said before, my path has been so largely about meditation uh, that I tend to come back to that as kind of the bottom line. Um, when you don't know what else to do, you can do that. You know, you can really offer uh, loving kindness to yourself and to others. Yeah. And I appreciate what you're saying. It's actually, in a way, two different modes of cultivating connection. One is actually doing it. So you go out, you volunteer, you you uh, care for others. You put yourself in positions where you actually really, literally, figuratively uh, putting yourself in, in caring situations for others, volunteering, etc., or um, through the circle of people that you may know. Um, the activity, connection through activity. And then the other is actually um, cultivating connection through your mind. Um, as, as we know, uh, as has been shown, um, when athletes, for example, they, they rehearse what they're going to do exactly and all the movements, it's as if they're doing it. There are many things that science shows that you actually, if you rehearse it, 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 um, uh, strengthens the connections and neuron, neuron, neuronal connections um, in your brain. To uh, you feel as if you have done it. Mm -hmm. It's like practice. So actually, when you cultivate, when you are doing this practice of metta, wishing yourself well, wishing others well, and feeling that sense of connection, you actually are feeling more connected. Mm -hmm. It will cultivate mm -hmm. that. And my understanding is, um, as far as I know, when uh, neuroscientists are working uh, in terms of yoga, hatha yoga. That's what they do, right? They don't have people wearing um, those things on their head. They have people in MRIs, fMRIs, imagining themselves doing the posture, and that's what they're testing. Yeah, yeah, and and um, and tying the practice of actually cultivating um, loving kindness, cultivating compassion. Um, maybe saying a few words for those who may not be familiar with this practice actually is. Well, as soon as we're turning off the recording, we're doing some, <laughs> which we already discussed. Right. How many of you um, are meditators anyway that you practice meditation? Okay. And how many of you do have done loving-kindness meditation? Great. 
Um, well, most, I think meditation practices of all kinds, any methodology or style, uh, are cultivating certain strengths, certain skills. Uh, one is concentration, where we're practicing uh, having a more stable attention, not flying all over the place so much, getting more and more centered. Um, and another skill is mindfulness. It's actually a skill. And the ability, oh, thank you so much. Um, the ability to notice where other people may not notice, like her glass is empty. Um, there are many ways of defining mindfulness. And um, one way is the quality of awareness so that our perception of what's happening in the present moment is not so distorted by bias. So old habits will tend to arise when anything arises. And the question is, can we see those habits, have them relinquished for a little bit so we can see more clearly what's going on? So one example would be for most of us, if we feel physical pain or emotional pain, heartache, disappointment, we tend to pretty quickly flip into a cycle of anticipation. What's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? Maybe even worse. Right? So not only do we have the actual difficult thing happening, we have everything we've now added to it in terms of our imagined future. So what we want to do in mindfulness is to see that add-on, see if we can let go of it and be with what's actually happening. And that's where the learning takes place. That's where myself, for example, sitting with fear, instead of, you know, this is wretched, I've been meditating for 400 years by now, why am I still afraid, you know? I spent all that money in therapy just last year. I shouldn't have any more fear. It was just, okay, here it is. It's happening. Let's take a look at it. Let's just be with it without adding on all that other stuff. And that's where those insights could arise about my experience of fear and what it's like and so on. And then the third skill after concentration and mindfulness is loving kindness or compassion. And it's at play from the moment we start, even if it's not talked about, because it's kind of like the secret ingredient. If, for example, you sit and you are resting your attention on the feeling of the breath, then maybe we'll do some of this as well. Um, and then you find not 10 hours later, but 10 seconds later, your mind has wandered. How are you going to let go and come back? Not if you spend you know, four and a half hours blaming yourself for being the, the worst meditator that ever lived. It's only by being kind to yourself that you can start over. And in addition to that, there are specific methods that are specially designed to deepen the qualities of love and compassion and so on. So um, that's the practice I did when I said I went to Burma in 1985 um, and I did three months of loving kindness practice. Or you know, if I teach a seven day retreat, the one that Nikki came and taught with me, it was all loving kindness practice. So you can choose to do that particular style of, of meditation if you want. Uh, or you can reap the benefit of it kind of developing secretly and silently as you do, as you do some other method, because that will definitely happen as well. And speaking of some of the benefits, what are some of the benefits that you've observed that people reap? Well, I, you know, I, I tend to go back to that very classical comment I made earlier about the Buddhist said he taught loving kindness practice as the antidote to fear. So and I think that's actually really true, that 
there are ways in which um, our immediate habitual response can be fear or aversion, dislike, um, discounting, not even noticing. I mean, think about that. How many people do you encounter every day that you just discount? They're like the other, not even because of prejudice or bias, but just indifference. And what's it like to actually look at them instead of through them? Right? So we kind of play with how we pay attention and see what happens, you know, as a result of that. So certainly in my own life and in, uh, you know, many people that I've taught, I've seen that. You know, there's a sense of connection. There's a sense of belonging um, and caring about others without being an idiot, you know. And uh, a real... um, it's a kind of naturalness to it, which I've always appreciated. It's not like you're some situation and someone starts talking to you and you think, ugh, you know, I can't believe you're the most boring person I've ever met, you know, but I just did this whole workshop on loving kindness and, you know, I better act like I care. Or even worse, <laughs> I taught this workshop on loving kindness, you know, I better act like I care. Um, it's not like that, you know, the shifts inside are very real. And, and feel very natural. You're not trying to pretend to be somebody you're not. And and that is beautiful. And and when you say that, Sharon, um, in, ter- in terms of the shifts that actually it makes in you, you're not trying to be someone who just taught this, you know, retreat or workshop. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember when you invited me to teach with you, that's really what I felt about you, that you were kind through and through. Um, it's just, it's who you are. This is what you're practicing. It's the fruit of your practice. And there's this, you know, famous Sharon Salzberg. Oh my gosh, she's invited me to teach with her. Oh my God. You were just kind through and through. Thank you. Yeah. It's, I'm being honest. So the, you know, here's an example of how this practice really changes you. You become a kind, caring person through and through. It's not this person that you're you know, trying to be, but you become that. And and that's just beautiful, really beautiful. Um, when you're talking about the retreat that you did, the three-month retreat um, years ago, one thing that I believe I, I read in your book, Loving Kindness, years and years ago, before I was a serious practitioner, before I, I experienced it myself, was, was this, this test that is put about mm-hmm. the boundaries, breaking down of the boundaries, which is a beautiful mm-hmm. feeling to experience. And I would love to ask you to speak about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in uh, kind of the formal practice of loving kindness meditation over time, not, I mean, we're just gonna have a few minutes to practice whatever we practice when we turn the microphone off. Um, uh, but over time, you know, like I was there for three months, or if you decide you want to do this at home every day and keep exploring it, you know, over time, we offer loving kindness through the silent repetition of certain phrases, like uh, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. The whole um, feeling tone of it is gift giving, it's offering. Like when I say, may I or may you be happy, people often say, who am I asking? And I say, we're not asking anybody, we're giving, it's blessing. It's offering. It's like giving someone a birthday card and saying, may you have a great year. You know, it's like that. So uh, there's, a, there's a sequence that is experienced over time. The first recipient of our loving kindness is ourselves. The underlying principle of the sequence 
uh, is said to be doing it in the easiest way possible. So ironically, 2,600 years ago in India, the belief clearly was that we should be the easiest person of all. And we build from there. So that's not the current reality for many people. And so in honoring that underlying principle, we just switch the order, which is, you know, an instruction that you'll get if you're doing that practice. But the classical sequence is yourself, a benefactor, someone who's helped you or inspired you. Maybe you've met them, maybe you've never met them. But it just kind of lifts your spirits when you think of them. It's like an embodiment of the force of love for you. So uh, it could be an adult, could be a child, could even be a pet. The texts say, um, this is the one who, when you think of them, you smile. So it's yourself, the benefactor, and then a friend. And this might take weeks, you know, to move through. You might do it more quickly, but you're not trying to do it all in one set, you know, one 10 minute session. Um, yourself, a benefactor, a friend, someone known as a neutral person. And that's what I was referring to before. It's often someone you encounter in your life, maybe many times. They're your dry cleaner or the shopkeeper the place you like to shop and um, you have no particular feeling for or against them, but we also don't pay any attention to them usually. So what happens when you in effect hold them in your heart and wish them well? I don't know um, if you remember uh, when we were together um, at IRC at the retreat center, a lovely retreat center and uh, I was talking uh, actually to Gail, who's the teacher there, who trained with me in Burma. Um, that's where we met in Burma. And he at the time had a, a girlfriend he was traveling with. And when I got to that part of my practice, she was my neutral person because I didn't really know her and she was just there. And she actually left Burma a while before I did. And I happened to run into her in the streets of, of Bangkok when I left like a month later, and my heart just filled. It was like, there she is. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just felt so much for her, never having said anything to her once we started sitting. But just because every day I was holding her in my heart and wishing her well. So uh, Gil just brought her up in that conversation. And he said, I remember that woman I was traveling with. And I looked at him and I said, she was my neutral person. <laughs> <laughs> and he knew exactly what I was feeling, you know, from... His years of practice. <laughs> so after the neutral person is a difficult person. And here we go back to that original um, underlying principle, not to start with the most unthinkable person in our lives who's hurt us so badly or in our eyes has behaved so despicably in the world stage, but starting with someone there's a little bit of annoyance with or, and we're slowly making our way over. And then all beings everywhere, just the kind of opening to acknowledging our connection to all of life. Um, and anyone sitting, you can't do all that, like I said. So maybe you start with yourself. You know you're going to end with all beings. And then there's one person in the middle. You know, you have a um, friend who's having surgery. I just did this the other day. I got up because I had a friend having surgery. And so most of that sitting was devoted to her or a friend whose daughter's graduating high school, or, you know, whatever it is that will determine the middle part of that. But uh, that's the basic trajectory. And, you know, every day will feel different and it won't be some great uh, breakthrough often, which is what we long for. 
But if you give it a little time and you look at your life, you'll see that you're really different. Yeah. And if, if you would also uh, uh, speak about the breaking down of boundaries. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, right. That one. So um, in Burma, it took me about six weeks to get through myself, the benefactor, a friend, a neutral person, and a difficult person. And in Burma, they call the difficult person the enemy. So it's like a lot more dramatic. <laughs> so at that point, Upandita, uh, my teacher, who liked to sort of give you these pop quizzes, called me into his room, like his sitting room, and he had all these people in there, I think with the board of directors of the monastery or something. So he said to me, this is my quiz, he said, so say you're walking in the forest and it's you and your benefactor and your friend and your neutral person and your difficult person, your enemy. And these bandits come up to you and they say, one amongst you has to die and you are responsible for choosing which one. Who do you choose? So I thought, oh, great. You know, so I closed my eyes and tried to find the place within where I could say, well, that person's life is not worth as much. Or, and I couldn't find it. Because by that time, it had been six weeks of very ardent, intensive practice, including everybody on that list in that field of well-wishing. And I said, I just can't make a choice. So he said, not even your enemy. And I genuinely couldn't, you know, say that at that moment. And then he said, not even yourself. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> I gave the wrong answer. Of course it should be myself. And I closed my eyes and I really tried. But I couldn't. I couldn't say that either. And I told him that, and he just kind of nodded, and, and I went away. And um, there's a, a great commentarial work called the Vasudhimagra, The Path of Purification. It's written down, I think, about 500 years after the time of the Buddha. And it has very extensive writings about different practices and things you'll experience. So I happen to have a copy in my room. This is, you know, before computers and cell phones, before everything. Uh, but I had a copy. And uh, I opened it up to loving kindness practice, and there was the quiz. And it turned out I'd given the correct answer. That that's what they had hoped for as an experience that you really would not make that that kind of difference. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Sharon. Thank you. Yeah, I would love to ask you. But you uh, you practiced with Manindraji, with Goenka, with um, with Deepama. Uh, would love to hear some stories if you love to share anything about Deepama. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, Deepama, in some ways, Goenka was my first teacher, so of course he was hugely significant. Saida Upandita was my metta teacher, my loving kindness teacher. And they were all hugely significant for me. And Deepama was the person who told me to teach, so she formed my entire life, basically, in that in that moment, I was um, 21. And I'd gone to India when I was 18, through college. Um, it was kind of like my junior year abroad. And uh, went back and finished school, went back to India. And in 1974, I was getting ready to leave uh, India to come back for what I thought was a very brief visit and then go back to India for the rest of my life. And I went to Calcutta just to like get her blessing and say goodbye for my very brief visit, and and that was when she told me to teach. And uh, 
in fact, she said, you will be teaching in America. And I said, no, I won't. She said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. She said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. And we went back and forth a bit. And it was, it was from that conversation, actually, that uh, when I did come back and I saw Joseph Goldstein, who was uh, in Boulder, Colorado, it was the first opening of an Europa Institute, and Jack Cornfield was living down the hallway, and um, and they were teaching, and then Joseph got invited to uh, stay on, and I stayed on with him to teach till I went back to India for the rest of my life. And then we got invited to teach a one-month retreat, so I taught that with him. So, you know, so it took a while, but it became clear to me at some point, like, oh, she was right, you know? Mm. So here we are. She was right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And some say that she had um, spiritual powers yeah. seeing to yeah. the future. So here we are. Yeah. Um, not, not only having taught thousands of people, but also having written so many books, yeah. Yeah. 10 books, the... And most yeah. recent one being um, real love before that, yeah. real happiness. Um, so many books. So um, what what are some of, I mean, it's hard to, to ask you to choose your, it's like asking you to choose your favorite child. But, you know, what are, um, and maybe the most recent book is always your favorite no. Okay. Well, no, tell us more, Sharon. Tell us, tell us about your books a little bit. Um, I'm writing number 11, you know, which is... All right. Uh, in fact, with number 10, which is Real Love, I try to school myself not to say my last book because it shouldn't be my last book. It's just my most recent book. Um, probably the... Uh, uh, it is a little hard to choose, but I, I'd say Faith is probably my favorite book. Um, it's really like my spiritual autobiography. It was the hardest one to write. And uh, it took the most from within me to write. And um, Loving Kindness was my first book, so that was its own kind of major thing. Uh, but I'd say faith, yeah. Lovely. Thank you for that. Yeah. And also, you're so busy and you're doing so many things, including um, the Meta Hour podca podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to, to, to ask you about the Meta Hour podcast. How did that come about? Um, I should also say that many, many things in my life, well, how should I start? Um, before I went to India the very first time, which was, I left in the fall of 1970. It was the beginning of my junior year. Um, I was going to school in Buffalo, New York, State University of New York at Buffalo. And um, somebody brought Trungpa Rinpoche, who's a you know, Tibetan Lama, on his first trip to North America, they brought him to Buffalo. And uh, <laughs> he didn't speak at the university, he spoke at a college nearby, but I went, you know, I was like so excited. And I was going to India, I knew that, but I didn't know where to go to find a teacher. And I was very concerned with not just being um, swept away by a kind of philosophical abstraction, but really learning the how-to of meditation, which is why I'd written the proposal to begin with and I went to hear his talk and then they asked for written questions so he had this big pile of questions in front of him and he I wrote the question and I'm leaving for India in like three days you know where should I go to study Buddhist meditation and he picked my question out of this pile and he read it out loud and then he said 
I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. And that was it. It's like, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. Like no addresses, no like <laughs> handy monastery guidebook, like nothing. And it happened exactly that way. You know, I went to Dharamsala because I knew the Dalai Lama was there. I'd heard he was a Buddhist. I thought, okay, I'll find a teacher. And uh, there was a meditation class and it was a superb teacher, but it was one of those situations where it just didn't work. Like I'd go to the class and they'd say, oh, the translator had to go to the dentist the other end of India, you know, try in two weeks or, you know, it was like that. And then I overheard a conversation at a restaurant, a Tibetan restaurant, where these two people were talking about uh, an international Hatha yoga conference that was going to happen in New Delhi. And I thought, oh, I'll find a teacher there. So I went to New Delhi. And the conference was a really dismal affair. Um, the low point of which, this is all on faith, by the way. The low point of which was when these yogis and swamis were up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. And I thought, oh, this is dreadful, you know. I might as well stay in Buffalo. And then um, Dan Goldman, who, of course, decades later became famous for his book, Emotional Intelligence, for some unknown reason, he was giving a paper at that conference. He was giving a talk, and he meant he was a graduate student at the time studying meditation, which was almost unheard of anyway. And he said at the end of his talk that he was on his way to this town called Bodhgaya, which had, the town had, has grown up around the tree, the descendant of the tree. They say the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened, and he was going to do this intensive 10-day meditation retreat with his teacher, S.N. Goenka, and it was going to be really like the straight stuff. It was the how-to. It was the pragmatics of how to actually meditate. And you don't have to become a Buddhist or declare anything or reject anything. And I thought, that's it. And it was it. You know, so many, many things in my life have been like that. We started the Insight Meditation Society. Uh, we moved in Valentine's Day, 1976. And our mantra was, we can always close in a year. No one in this country wants to learn how to meditate. We'll close it down. You know, and people say, you must have had such a vision. And we say, well, not really. You know, like, <laughs> we had no idea what was going to happen. We didn't have like a master plan. We didn't. And so I'd say there are many things like that still in my life that are just like that. So just happens. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you, Sharon. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm getting the sign to, yeah. to wrap it up. And just want to thank you so much for being you. And, and <laughs> thank really you for being you. What, what you've done in really bringing these practices from Asia and, and teaching all these years. And it's just been a delight and privilege to, to be with you tonight and have this conversation. Really, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, 
please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.